17, 2023. I'm Dave Buzik. My partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Judith Linden. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. For this first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Let's take a look at the weather and then Judith will run us through the headlines on the front page of today's register. Well, the lead-up to the Thanksgiving holiday looks much cooler and blustery than it has been, and hasn't it been nice? Some wintry weather is possible around Friday of next week and into next weekend. However, considerable forecast uncertainty at that time range precludes digging much further into specific details at this time. So that could have an impact on Thanksgiving travel. Travel. National Weather Service says monitor the forecast for updates over the coming days. Here's the forecast for Des Moines and central Iowa today. Sunny and cooler, high around 45, sorry, 49. Breezy early in the day, then winds will relax some later in the day to around 5 miles an hour out of the west. Tonight, clear skies low down to 30, southwest winds around 5. Tomorrow, sunny, high around 59. Winds out of the west at 5 to 10 miles an hour, gusts up to 15. Tomorrow night, partly cloudy, low down to 35. Winds out of the east at 10 to 15. Sunday, increasing clouds throughout the day. A few raindrops possible in southwest Iowa by Sunday night, a high of 57 degrees, winds out of the southeast at 10 to 15. Sunday night, mostly cloudy, chance of a rain shower in southwest Iowa, low 42. Then Monday, cloudy with a chance of rain, highest chance in southern Iowa, a high around 44 degrees. Um, some wind on Monday, too. Winds out of the east at 10 to 15 miles an hour, which, as you know, usually means rain, and the gusts to around 25 miles an hour on Monday. So, good morning, Judith. How are you? Let's take a look at the front page of today's Des Moines Register. Very well. And I am about to read the front page from the Des Moines Register. Three stories. Meta sued over $100 million Altoona project, accused of reneging on lease agreement. Goodell gets 25 years in teacher's murder. Victim's family members express condemnation and some forgiveness. And your Thanksgiving dinner will cost a little less this year. Here's the first story. Goodell gets 25 years in teacher's murder. This story by William Morris. Two years after her former sister-in-law's murder, Barbara Graber hopes the second killer's sentence to at least 25 years in prison will help her family move on. Barbara Graber wrote, I am so ready to clear my head of thoughts of Jeremy Goodall and his co-defendant Willard Miller, she wrote in a victim impact statement, read Wednesday during Goodell's sentence for the murder of Fairfield teacher Nohema Graber. It haunts me, the last face Nohema saw on this earth and the last words she heard were those of Mr. Goodell. Miller and Goodell both pleaded guilty to first-degree murder in the death of Graber, who disappeared while walking in a Fairfield park on November 2, 2021. Her body was found soon after, hidden under a tarp and wheelbarrow. Police within hours arrested Goodell and Miller, both then 16, based on statements Goodell made to friends on social media. 
Cadell later told investigators that Miller wanted to kill Graber because he was failing her Spanish class and was afraid he wouldn't be able to go on a study abroad trip overseas. Miller was sentenced in July to life in prison with a minimum term of 35 years before he is eligible for parole, five years more than the 30 that prosecutors had recommended under a plea agreement. For Goodell, who had agreed to testify against Miller if the case went to trial, prosecutors had recommended a term of 25 years, and on Wednesday, Judge Sean Showers adopted that recommendation. The court heard from numerous members of Graber's extended family, voicing feelings of pain and anger, but also, in some cases, words of encouragement for Goodell. Jim Graber, Nohema Graber's former brother-in-law, said that her death also significantly contributed to the death of her ex-husband, Paul, who died in June from a cancer that family members believe would have been detected and treated uh, sooner had she still been alive. It was an evil deed, and in the death of Nahema, you had a direct impact on the death of my brother Paul, he told Goodell. Other family members called the crime a horrific act and a complete travesty. Several said they believed Goodell could have prevented the murder, but instead had not only failed to act, but also participated. Yet several also told Goodell that they will be praying for him. Christian Graber, the victim's son, told Goodell that he forgives him, and he believes his mother still loves and wants the best for her former student. Christian said, I, A lot of people don't believe in you, but your family believes in you, your father, your sisters, your nephew, and I believe you can be a good man, he said. When his turn came to speak, Goodell faced Graber's, Graber's family and tearfully apologized for her death. What I have taken can never be replaced, he said. Every day I wish I could go back and stop myself, prevent this loss. Goodell said he failed to think about how Graber's death would affect her family, the school, the broader community, and even his own family, to whom he also apologized. He said, two years ago I made the worst decision of my life, and I take full responsibility for what I did. Today, as a young man, I can begin to pay for that. Under Iowa law, Showers was required to consider a lengthy list of factors before sentencing a juvenile to a mandatory minimum prison term. The judge found that the particular depravity of Graber's, mur Graber's murder and the enormous impact on her family and the community were aggravating factors, but balanced that against Goodell's remorse, acceptance of responsibility, and challenging home life and mental health struggles. Shower said, although you were older than Mr. Miller, it's clear to me that you were not more mature than him, and Mr. Miller was far more sinister in his planning. The judge said Goodell will need significant rehabilitation, a statement to which Goodell nodded from the defense table, but he said he believes Goodell, now 18, has a good chance to turn his life around. Showers told Goodell, Unless you're unlike your co-defendant, it's clear to me you have regretted your role in Mrs. Graber's murder. I think time will tell, but you're far more likely to be successful than Mr. Miller. Goodell's attorneys declined to comment after the hearing. Jefferson County Attorney Chauncey Molding acknowledged Goodell's remorse and efforts to take responsibility during the hearing and afterwards said he thinks Goodell's 25-year minimum sentence with the opportunity for rehabilitation represents justice. 
Uh, Molding said, I believe Jeremy committed one of the most heinous acts we have seen in Jefferson County, but that does not speak to who he can become with the right treatment and programming. Thomas Graber, another of Nohema Graber's former brothers-in-law, said afterward that the family is satisfied with the sentence and appreciates the work of the prosecutors and judge. And again, we are so grateful to the community for the outpouring of support, he said. She was a wonderful woman, and we are going to miss her for a long time. Second front page story in today's register headline, Meta sued over $100 million Altoona project, accused of reneging on a lease agreement. This story by Kevin Baskins. A real estate investment partnership is suing Meta Platforms, alleging that the owner of Facebook and Instagram has reneged on an agreement to guarantee leases for more than $100 million complex that the real estate partnership says it's building to Meta's specifications in Altoona. Meta counters in a November 2nd letter to Hawkeye Investment Partners, filed as an exhibit with a lawsuit, that the employee who gave Hawkeye lease guarantees for the three-building, nearly one million square foot facility was not authorized to do so and that he has since left the company. According to lease documents filed with the lawsuit, the new buildings, apparently their warehouses, are in Altoona's I-80 Business Park, northwest of the interchange of Interstate 80 and Hubble Avenue. That site is adjacent to a meta data center that the company in 2021 said would be its largest in the world by 2025. The lessee is JT Logistics, a Des Moines metro warehousing company that the lawsuit says, quote, entered into each of the leases with the knowledge of meta and for the purposes of providing logistics services to meta. Wheaton, Illinois-based Hawkeye's lawsuit filed in Polk County District Court seeks a judge's ruling that the lease guarantees are valid and that Meta's repudiation of the agreements be found unlawful and void. The leases were signed June 1st with the annual cost ranging from $7.4 million in the first year to $11.2 million in the 15th and final year. The lawsuit says Hawkeye used the lease guarantees to secure financing for the construction of the warehouses from Bankers Trust. The November 2nd letter immediately jeopardizes Hawkeye's construction financing and Bankers Trust's willingness and ability to continue funding the project pursuant to the construction loan and severely threatens Hawkeye's ability to complete the buildings, according to the lawsuit. The lawsuit further says, quote, because the buildings are in the midst of construction, this would, among other things, result in contractors and subcontractors not being paid, millions of dollars of liens being filed on the project, and tremendous damage to Hawkeye, unquote. It says the guarantee documents were signed on behalf of Meta by Gus Iano, A-I-O-N-O, Iano, a Meta program manager. But the letter from Meta Vice President Kevin Salvadori to Hawkeye says Ayano is no longer employed by Meta, by Meta, that he was not authorized to enter such agreements, and that Meta had no knowledge of the agreements. The letter also alleges that while our investigation is ongoing, we have reason to believe that one or more of those involved in preparing or signing these documents knew or had reason to know that Mr. Ayano did not have the authority to sign on behalf of or otherwise bind Meta. Ayano could not be reached by the Register for Comment. 
The letter from Meta further states that it repudiates the guarantee documents in their entirety and deems them invalid and unenforceable. Lawyers for Meta and Hawkeye Investments did not respond to emails seeking comment. Meta first announced its plans to build a giant data center in Altoona back in 2013. Since then, Facebook has invested more than $2 billion to develop the site. Your Thanksgiving dinner will cost a little less this year. This story by Donnell Eller. This year's Thanksgiving dinner will cost 4.5% less than last year's re record high holiday meal. Dropping to $61.17 for a gathering of 10, the American Farm Bureau Federation's annual survey released Wednesday shows last year's meal hit $64.05, climbing 20% from the 2021 total the National Farm Group reported. Despite the decline, the cost of the feast is still 25% higher than 2019's pre-pandemic price, the group said. Since then, global supply chain disruptions and inflation have pushed up United States grocery bills. Inflation is clearly still impacting food prices, said Farm Bureau senior economist Veronica Nye in a call with reporters Wednesday. The price of several traditional foods filling Americans' tables declined this year. The average price of a 16-pound turkey dropped 5.6% to $27.35, according to the Farm Bureau survey conducted annually for 38 years. Nye said traditionally the turkey is the most expensive item on the Thanksgiving dinner table, accounting for about half of the bill. But turkey prices have fallen, thanks to a sharp reduction in cases of avian influenza, which have allowed production to increase in time for the holiday. Turkey prices could fall even more in the days leading up to the holiday. Volunteer shoppers checked prices November 1st through 6th before most grocery store chains began featuring whole frozen turkeys at sharply lower prices, the Farm Bureau said. But Nike warned consumers not to wait too long or they could end up with a much larger or smaller turkey than they want. In addition to turkey, the group shopping list of traditional fixings includes stuffing, sweet potatoes, rolls with butter, peas, cranberries, a veggie tray, and pumpkin pie with whipped cream, all in quantity sufficient to guarantee plenty of leftovers. Farm President Zibi Duval said in a statement, while high food prices are a concern for every family, America still has one of the most affordable food supplies in the world. We have accomplished that in part due to strong farm labor bill programs that provide price support in the event of drought, floods, or other natural disasters that cut production. Duval went on to say, although our focus is sharing time with family and friends this Thanksgiving, our thoughts also turn to encouraging Congress to double down on a commitment to passing a new farm bill with a modernized safety net to support those who raise the crops and livestock that supply Thanksgiving dinner and every dinner. A new farm bill hammered out every five years is part of the budget Congress is now debating. Nye said only about 14 cents of every food dollar trickles down to farmers. She said, don't assume farmers come out as winners from higher food prices at the grocery store. And here are the individual prices for the components of a traditional Thanksgiving meal. A 16-pound turkey, $27.35, or $1.71 per pound. That's down 5.6%. 
14 ounces of cubed stuffing mix is $3.77, which is down 2.8%. Two frozen pie crusts, $3.50, down almost uh, 5%. Half pint of whipping cream, $1.73, down 22.8%. One pound of frozen peas, $1.88, down 1.1%. One dozen dinner rolls, $3.84, up 2.9%. Miscellaneous ingredients needed to prepare the meal, $3.95, down from 4.4%. That includes 30-ounce can of pumpkin pie mix, $4.44, which is up 3.7%. One gallon of whole milk, $3.74, down 2.6%. Three pounds of sweet potatoes, $3.97, up 0.3 tenths percent. One pound veggie tray, carrots and celery, 90 cents, up 2.3%. And 12 ounce bag of fresh cranberries, down $2.10, which is uh, down 18.3%. Acknowledging some changes in Thanksgiving dinner traditions, the Farm Bureau's price survey also includes boneless ham, russet potatoes, and frozen green beans in an expanded menu. Adding these foods to the classic Thanksgiving menu increased the overall cost by $23.58 to $84.75. The Farm Bureau's analysis showed regional differences in the cost of the meal. The cost for the classic meal was lowest in the Midwest, at $58.66, followed by the South at $59.10, the West $63.89, and by the South, I'm sorry, by the Northeast at $64.38. The expanded meal also was the most affordable in the Midwest at $81.83, followed by the South at $82.61, the West, $87.75, and the Northeast at $88.43. This year's national average cost was calculated using 245 surveys completed with pricing data from all 50 states and Puerto Rico. The shoppers check prices in person and online using grocery store apps and websites. They looked for the best possible prices without taking advantage of special promotional coupons or purchase deals, the group said. And I'll read this national story from page 3A of today's register about uh, Congressman George Santos from New York. And then, um, Judith, maybe you can read the story at the top of that page about the Iowa congressional reaction to um, yesterday's report. So the headline is, House Ethics Panel finds that Santos likely committed crimes, allegedly used his campaign for his personal benefit. This story by the USA Today, Dateline, Washington. The House Ethics Committee released its long-awaited report on embattled Representative George Santos, a Republican from New York, concluding that there is, quote, substantial evidence that Representative Santos violated federal criminal laws. The committee said it would be referring the evidence it found to the Department of Justice as it pursues a criminal case against Santos on charges including money laundering, wire fraud, and lying to Congress. The committee compiled more than 170,000 pages of documents, testimony from witnesses, and financial statements, which, quote, demonstrated the breadth of Representative Santos's misconduct, the report says. The committee found evidence supporting allegations against Santos that he sought to exploit his House campaign for his own personal benefit, that he, quote, blatantly stole from his own campaign, 
deceived campaign donors to make payments for his own personal benefits, lied about his campaign finances, and sustained all of his criminal activities through lying to his constituents, donors, and staff about his background. In a report from the subcommittee that was formed to investigate Santos, the probe found, quote, a complex web of unlawful activity involving Representative Santos's campaign, personal, and business finances. It continued, Representative George Santos cannot be trusted. At nearly every opportunity, he placed his desire for private gain above his duty to uphold the Constitution, federal law, and ethical principles, unquote. Santos blasted the report in a statement calling it biased and an effort to smear him and his legal team about him not being forthcoming. He said, I've come to expect vitriol like this from political opposition, but not from the hollowed halls of public service. He did say, however, that he will not be seeking re-election in 2024 for a second term. He said, as my family deserves better than to be under the gun from the press all the time. Leading up to the report's release, Santos has claimed that he was cooperating with the committee as it conducted its investigation. But the report from the committee contends that that was another lie, and that Santos evaded the committee's straightforward requests. When he did respond to the committee, the report said his responses only further advanced falsehoods that he made on the 2022 campaign trail. Santos's lies were so extravagant, the report said, that his campaign staff referred to him as a fabulist, and his lies were so concerning that he was encouraged to seek treatment. In addition, the report says Santos lied to his own staff, including claiming that he owned a Maserati, an Italian luxury car. But despite his filings with the IRS revealing that he made payments for a car loan through a personal bank account for a 2015 Mercedes-Benz. The report says, at no point does Representative Santos appear to have owned a Maserati. Santos's alleged crimes, however, go beyond his fabrications on the campaign trail and his lies to Congress. The report continues saying that Santos sought to personally enrich himself through his campaign. According to the report, some of the methods Santos used to personally benefit from his campaign included having funds from what was supposed to be a bank account for the campaign deposited into his own personal bank account. The report says Santos deceived campaign donors into donating money into an entity called Redstone Strategies, LLC. Later, funds from Redstone's bank account were transferred into Santos's personal bank account for his own use, unrelated to campaign activities. At one point, $50,000 was transferred from the Redstone account to Santos's account. Those funds, according to the report, were used to pay off Santos's personal debt and pay for purchases including luxury goods, meals, and parking. The report says Representative Santos's fraudulent activities through Redstone were one of many ways he sought to exploit his campaign and the access to wealthy donors it afforded him for his own personal profit. The report also found a $20,000 transfer of campaign funds to a bank account with DeVolder organization, Santos's company. The account at the time of the transfer had a negative balance. After the wire transfer, the bank account was used to make roughly $6,000 worth of purchases at Ferragamo, another luxury goods store, withdraw $800 from an ATM at a casino, withdraw $1,000 from an ATM at Santos's apartment, and it was used to pay his rent. 
The committee considered issuing a subpoena to Santos for his testimony, but determined it would only delay the investigation and that his testimony in the first place would have low evidentiary value given his admitted, his admitted practice of embellishment. Since entering Congress in January, Santos has been under fire after it was discovered that he fabricated parts of his resume and misrepresented his background on the campaign trail. The New York Republican immediately faced calls to resign, but he remained defiant. Santos found himself in trouble again after the U.S. Justice Department indicted him in May over charges of wire fraud, money laundering, theft of public funds, and lying to Congress. He was hit with more charges in October, accused of identity theft and credit card fraud. Santos has denied all of the allegations of wrongdoing and has contended that he has the right to due process under the law. Both his Republican and Democratic colleagues have moved to expel him from Congress twice now. He ultimately survived both of those efforts, but he is already slated to face another expulsion attempt when the House returns into session after Thanksgiving. Santos dodged the last expulsion attempt earlier this month after the Ethics Committee announced earlier that it would release its report by November 17th. Numerous members from both sides of the aisle voted against expel expelling Santos, deferring to the Ethics Committee to release its report first before delivering judgment. But now that the scathing report is out, many of those members who originally voted against expulsion now say they will support removing Santos from the House. Nunn, Hinson, and Miller Meeks call on Santos to quit. This story by Stephen Gruber Miller. United States Rep Representative Zach Nunn, Ashley Hinson, and Marionette Miller Meeks are calling on their scandal plagued Republican colleague, U.S. Representative George Santos, to resign from Congress. Their condemnation of Santos follows a House Ethics Committee report Thursday that found substantial evidence that Santos, a New York Republican, has violated federal law. The committee found evidence supporting allegations against Santos that he sought to exploit his House campaign for his own personal benefit, blatantly stole from his own campaign, deceived campaign donors to make payments for his own personal benefits, lied about his campaign finances, and su sustained all of his criminal activities through lying to his constituents, donors, and staff about his background. Nunn, a Republican who represents Iowa's 3rd Congressional District, said in a statement, the American people deserve honesty and transparency from their elected representatives. George Santos has clearly not lived up to those ideals. This Ethics Committee investigation proves he is unfit to serve and should resign from office. If he does not, I will vote to remove him. Hinson, a Republican who represents Iowa's 2nd Congressional District, called the Ethics Committee report thorough and damning in a statement on social media. Hinson wrote, His conduct was illegal and unacceptable, and Americans deserve better from their representatives. He should resign today. If he refuses, I will vote to remove him from Congress, Hinson wrote. Miller Meeks, a Republican who represents Iowa's 1st Congressional District, also condemned Santos in a statement on social media Thursday afternoon. She said in the statement, now that the House Ethics Committee has found substantial evidence of criminal activity and referred Santos to the Department of Justice, I strongly urge his resignation or face expulsion. 
Santos has pleaded not guilty to the criminal charges he faces, which include money laundering, wire fraud, and lying to Congress. Santos said Thursday he will not seek re-election in 2024. He had previously vowed to run for re-election despite the criminal charges against him. He slammed the Ethics Committee report as being, quote, biased and an effort to smear him. The United States House of Representatives voted against expelling Santos on November 1st. All four of Iowa's Republican members of Congress were among the 213 representatives who voted against expelling Santos, while 179 representatives voted to expel him. The Ethics Committee report could prompt another vote to expel Santos. And we'll move to the Metro and Iowa section now. Four stories on the front page. Across the top, a second Democrat enters the District 3 congressional race for the U.S. House. Along the bottom, Miller Meeks whom Judith was just talking about, is to face a GOP primary challenge. On the left-hand side, uh, some nice photographs of pretty flowers. It's a headline that uh, Remen Gardens up in Ames makes the list of the top 10 gardens in North America. And along the right-hand side, Iowa lawmakers turn down an invitation from Grinnell College. Let's start at the top of the page. A second Democrat enters the District 3 U.S. House race. Melissa Vine is a business owner and a nonprofit leader. This story by Galen Becarrier of The Register. The Democratic nomination in Iowa's 3rd U.S. House District, which includes Des Moines, will be contested with the formal entry of a second candidate into the race on Wednesday of this week. Melissa Vine, V-I-N-E, a Des Moines-based nonprofit leader and a small business owner, is jumping in to challenge U.S. Representative Zach Nunn, a Republican. Vine will face a primary opponent in former U.S. Department of Agriculture and military veteran Lannon Bacom, who announced his candidacy last week. Vine, who serves as executive director of The Beacon and is the single mother of four sons, told the Des Moines Register in an interview that she would be focusing her campaign on abortion access, increased wages, and lower costs, and, she says, moving away from extremism. I think Iowans are getting fed up with our human rights being taken away and the divisiveness that goes along with that. So it's time to imagine what's possible and embrace the gifts of democracy, she said. Before leading the nonprofit that provides housing and programming to women recovering from trauma, Vine was a business owner who fell into poverty after getting out of an abusive marriage, eventually pursuing a master's degree while starting and selling small businesses. She's currently enrolled as a law student at Drake University alongside her role at The Beacon. Those experiences, Vine said, means that she has lived and worked among Iowans who she believes would support her over Zach Nunn, who's a former state senator and Air Force veteran who won the toss-up seat by just over 2,000 votes in 2022. Vine said, We have seen Zach Nunn side with extremists who are supporting a total abortion ban, and I think that's dangerous for the future of Iowans and for our country. But in order to face none in 2024, Vine will have to navigate a Democratic primary against Bacom, who quickly racked up prominent Democratic endorsements from former Governor Tom Vilsack, who's also the U.S. Agriculture Secretary, State Auditor Rob Sand, and House Minority Leader Jennifer Conferst, among others. He raised just over $250,000 in the 24 hours after he announced his candidacy. A third Democrat, Des Moines therapist Tracy Lyman, has also filed documents indicating a candidacy for the district, but has yet to make any public announcement. 
Vine said she wasn't concerned about a primary challenge, even one with support from established Iowa Democrats. She argued that it's actually an advantage to Iowans that I'm not a career politician, and she pledged to bring her first-hand experiences to Capitol Hill if elected. When I get into spaces, I change systems, and there's not a whole lot that can stop me, Vine said. Nunn's campaign manager, Kendall Parker, addressed Vine's entrance to the race in a statement yesterday morning. That statement said, while the Democrat establishment in Washington, D.C. attempts to ordain Lannon Bacom as the nominee, it's clear that Iowans want to make the decision for themselves. Melissa, Tracy, and Lannon are competing in a crowded Democratic primary, pushing the same tax and spend policies that have increased costs for Iowa families and driven up inflation, unquote. A spokesman for House Republicans' campaign arm in a Thursday statement called Vine, quote, just another extreme Democrat like Lannon Bacom and Tracy Lyman, all of whom will fight to the far left to stay relevant. National Republican Congressional Committee spokesman Mike Marinella said, one thing is for certain, whoever is left at the end of this will be bruised, broken, and unpalatable for Iowa voters. Vine first filed paperwork with the Federal Election Commission to run for the seat in mid-October. Her campaign committee is organized by Title Fight, a Des Moines-based political firm. And another uh, uh, political story here, Miller Meeks to face GOP primary challenge. This story also by Galen Bacherier, a Republic Republican businessman and minister from Davenport, says he is running for Iowa's first congressional district launching a primary challenge to U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks in southeast Iowa. David Potch, the longtime organizer of the annual Quad Cities Prayer Breakfast, told the Des Moines Register he was running for a seat out of a desire to expand the role of faith in government and to oust Miller-Meeks, whom he criticized as out of step with the Republican Party. His candidacy was first reported by the Quad Cities Times. Posh said in an interview, she doesn't act like a team player. She's off doing her own thing. Well, I don't know if she's a Democrat or Republican. I'd like to find out. Miller Meeks came under fire from conservatives last month who were opposing U.S. Representative Jim Jordan's bid for Speaker of the House, breaking from a majority of Republicans in the chamber and saying she received death threats as a result. Pouch criticized that vote, as well as her support for an independent commission to investigate the January 6th Capitol riot. He said, you can go through a whole laundry list of things where she was more supportive of Biden than she was the Republican Party. That's pretty clear, and the information is all out there. At her annual fundraiser event, Miller Meeks declared that she was never going to quit fighting for Iowa, and if you think you can intimidate me, Go suck it up, buttercup. A spokesperson for her campaign did not respond to a request for comment. Pouch, who has led the annual prayer breakfast in the Quad Cities since 1995, said central to his candidacy was to seek God's guidance in governing and to urge people to seek the help or love God. The most recent breakfast in September featured author Eric Metaxas and Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, who has spread conspiracies about the 2020 presidential election and is a prominent campaign surrogate for Donald Trump. Metaxas said, we can no longer be embarrassed talking about God as though somehow it is improper. This whole business of the separation of church and state is so bogus. 
Miller-Meeks did not adhere to some of the basic principles of involvement of God, Pouch argued, saying it was not part of her mentality. Miller-Meeks won the first district in 2022 with 53% of the vote, defeating Democrat Christina Bohannon. Bohannon is again running for the seat. And this uh, story with several pretty pictures, at least uh, in black and white anyway, on the front page of the Metro and Iowa section, Ryman Gardens makes a list of the top 10 gardens in America. There's a big picture of a bunch of tulips, which obviously is from earlier uh, in the season, with the caption, Dayton elementary students enjoy looking around the blooming tulips during their field trip at Ryman Gardens on May 12th of 2022 in Ames. Then there's another one from this past October. More than a thousand hand-carved jack-o'-lanterns are displayed at the Spirits in the Garden event at Ryman Gardens. That was, again, from October 14th last month uh, in Ames, and it shows a bunch of uh, jack-o'-lanterns that are carved with the various uh, things on the front, some animals, some faces, all in a big circle around what looks like a reflecting pool up at Ryman. So here's the story. The beauty of Iowa State's Ryman Gardens has earned a spot on a prestigious top 10 list that could increase tourism in Ames and Iowa as well. Already one of the most popular attractions in the state, Ryman Gardens was named to the top 10 North American gardens worth traveling for on November 3rd. Ryman Gardens director Ed Lyon received the award at the International Garden Tourism Conference in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Lyon said in a news release, Ryman Gardens is humbled and pleased to be awarded this recognition. It's my hope that our members, volunteers, donors, and community will take great pride in their involvement and support with the gardens, a true community asset. A news release from the Canadian Garden Council noted that the award was presented to gardens that have excelled in their efforts to cultivate and showcase garden experiences as compelling tourism destinations and truly exemplify the beauty and allure of our continent's horticultural treasures. More than 90 delegates from 40 gardens and 12 countries attended the conference in British Columbia. The gardens host more than 17 million ticketed visitors each year, which is growing, according to the conference officials at the International Garden Tourism Network, which organized the event. With the theme, Seizing the Moment, the conference's purpose was to recognize the abundant possibilities for gardens and the tourism sector to collaborate to enhance the appeal of gardens as well as destinations, especially post-pandemic, thereby attracting more visitors. Ryman Gardens is a botanical garden near the Iowa State Center and Jack Trice Stadium in Ames. It opened on five acres in 1995, replacing smaller horticultural gardens on campus since 1914. Ryman Gardens is named after Roy and Bobby Ryman, who donated $1.3 million to help fund the creation of the garden. Construction began on the Children's Garden in 1998, followed by the creation of the Town and Country Garden and Lake Helen. Ryman has grown to its current size of 17 acres in less than 30 years. The Hughes Conservatory and Christina Ryman Butterfly Wing were added in 2002. The Butterfly Building is home to about 800 live butterflies, representing up to 80 different species. Ryman Gardens added Elwood, the world's largest concrete gnome, in 2010. Standing 15 feet tall and weighing 3,500 pounds, Elwood is named after the street that runs past the gardens before it was changed to University Boulevard in 2007. 
Sycamore Falls was added to the south end of Ryman in 2021. The area features a waterfall, stream, and a night-lit tower. Ryman is host each year to numerous events and exhibits. Spirits in the Gardens features more than a thousand hand-carved jack-o'-lanterns and trick-or-treating. Art exhibits, orchid competitions, quilt shows, and winter wonderscape light display are among the many other events. Currently, Ryman Gardens is featuring the RG Express, a garden-sized train that makes its way through plants and blooms in the Hughes Conservatory. The display features several iconic Ames buildings in garden scale, created using natural materials. Among the miniature buildings are the Campanile, Beardshire Hall, and Morrill Hall. The train exhibit will be open until January 20th. The exhibit will open extended hours until 7 p.m. each Tuesday in December to allow for nighttime viewing. The display is included in the regular price of admission. Admission is free for members and Iowa State University students. The top 10 North American gardens worth traveling for in alphabetical order. The Atlanta Botanical Gardens in Atlanta, Georgia. Coastal Maine Botanical Gardens in Booth Bay, Maine. I toured there about a month ago, and it's absolutely beautiful. Denver Botanic Gardens in Denver, Colorado. Fioli, F-I-O-L-I, in Woodside, California. The Gardens of Mexico in Morelos, Mexico. Haraveri Botanical Garden in Jalisco, Mexico. Montreal Botanical Garden in Montreal, Quebec and Niagara Botanical Gardens in Niagara Falls, Ontario, Ryman Gardens in Ames, and The Leaf in Winnipeg, Canada. The award winners were selected by garden tourism leaders from the Canadian Garden Council, the American Public Garden Association, and the Mexican Association of Botanical Gardens, according to the news release. Lawmakers turned down Grinnell invitation. Letter cites college's response to protests. This story from the Iowa Capitol Dispatch by Brooklyn Drazy. Eight Iowa lawmakers have rejected an invitation from Grinnell College, citing their disagreement with the college's response to pro-Palestine protests on campus. A November 13 letters signed by Republican state representatives Barb Kniff-McCullough, Austin Harris, Dean Fisher, John Dunwell, Helena Hayes, and Hans Wills and Senators Ken Rosenboom and Sherry Lynn Westrich said they will not attend a November 28 dinner at the college. They said their absence is intended to express their disappointment in a statement made by the college in the wake of a walkout led by students to condemn Israel's actions in the Gaza conflict. Grinnell College was unable to provide comment Wednesday. Grinnell students have held multiple protests in the month since fighting began, including a die-in at a November uh, 11 alumni dinner. The Students for Justice in Palestine at Grinnell College have called for college president Ann Harris and the university to announce support for a ceasefire. But according to a social media post from the group, Harris said in an email that she cannot and will not make public statements that will divide the community. The letter said the lawmakers were alarmed at protests occurring at universities across the United States and said they were disappointed to see a similar walkout at Grinnell. A campus-wide message from Harris posted November 1st called for the campus community to stay informed about the conflict, look out for each other, 
reach out for support when needed, be aware of discrimination, and report uh, harassment when necessary. <clears throat> Harris said in the statement, we are here now at Grinnell College, all of us doing the very best we can to comprehend world events and to contribute to relief from suffering and to the hope for peace. That vital work begins among us and radiates outwards, Harris said. The legislators were concerned with another part of the message, which said instances of anti-Semitic and Islamophobic harassment are on the rise on college campuses, and the college denounces anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. The lawmaker said that statement equates the two forms of discrimination. While the students were exercising their First Amendment right to free speech and assembly, the letter said, the representatives were hopeful that the college administration would respond with Quote, truth instead of tepid, middle-of-the-road platitudes, end quote. The letter went on to say that message fell short, far short, of the clear and unmistakable moral clarity needed in this moment. Just as there was no moral equivalence during the Holocaust, there is no moral equivalence to the genocidal attacks on October 7, 2023. And Judith, I'll read this story so you don't have to. Headline, Half-Naked Man Lies on Table for Protest at Des Moines Intersection. This story by Jose Mendiola of the Des Moines Register. Those walking by the intersection of East Grand Avenue and East 4th Street in Des Moines were in for a surprise when they saw a half-naked man lying on his back posing as a Thanksgiving turkey. Furrowed brows and perplexed smiles were on the faces of the people craning their necks to see the protest performance led by PETA, a nonprofit animal rights organization. The protest was meant to spread the message of the treatment of turkeys. Rachel Holstein, a junior campaigner with PETA, said more than 46 million turkeys are killed each year in the United States for Thanksgiving alone. Turkeys have a natural lifespan of 12 years, but only live up to three to five months before they're butchered for consumption, Holstein said. She said, we're here because nobody needs to consume meat. She was handing out pamphlets of vegan Thanksgiving recipes and then said, I think people are open to giving some vegan recipes a try. Maybe they're not ready for a full-on vegan feast, but hopefully, eventually, they will. Louis Coryal, who was clad in only beige uh, compression shorts and oversized turkey frills, said this was his fifth year participating in the event. Coryal, who remained laying on his back posing as a turkey, said, It is a little uncomfortable, but it's nothing in comparison to what all the turkeys go through during Thanksgiving. I get to be here for an hour being uncomfortable and feeling a little bit cold, but I get a break and the turkeys don't. Coryal, who had his head propped up by a plastic cup, said this was his second protest of the week. Both Holstein and Coryal were in Kansas City, Missouri on Tuesday and planned to head to Indianapolis later on this week. Many people who drove by the intersection in the East Village were seen laughing and taking out their phones to snap a photo. Some drivers heckled Holstein and Coryal before driving off, and some gave their verbal support to the duo. Tony Smith, a passerby, said, Honestly, I'm proud of them. It's tough to stand up for something, whether I agree or disagree with it. PETA can be divisive, but they were very nice, and I'm glad they're out here doing it. Smith, who usually participates in a traditional Thanksgiving dinner, said he might give the vegan recipe guide a try this year. I've always thought about it, but maybe now I'll consider it. He said it can't hurt to give it a try. 
Thank you, David. Bird flu identified in Benton County backyard flock. 16 million birds destroyed in Iowa due to the outbreak. This story by Jose Mendiola. Both the state and federal departments of agriculture have confirmed a positive case of the highly contagious bird flu in Benton County, officials said Wednesday afternoon. The affected site in the county was a mixed-species backyard flock, according to a news release from the Iowa Department of Agriculture. State officials confirmed two positive cases in Kosuth and uh, Cerro Gordo counties last week. There were 86 birds in the backyard flock, Don McDowell, a department spokesman, said. The bird populations are afflicted with highly pathogenic avian influenza, a highly contagious and often fatal viral disease that can travel in wild birds without them displaying symptoms. The disease can impact chickens and turkeys and is most often spread by the droppings or nasal discharge of an infected bird, both of which can contaminate dust and soil. Some of the symptoms of HPAI include sudden increase in bird deaths without any clinical signs, soft, thin-shelled, or misshapen eggs, and difficulty breathing. Migrating wild birds carry the virus and spread it as they cross the state and the Midwest. There have been 45 commercial, backyard, and mixed flocks infected with um, HPAI in Iowa since March 1, 2022. Thirteen were infected in a resurgence of the disease this fall. Commercial turkey flocks accounted for the largest impacted type of flock at 20, with backyard mixed species being the second most impacted flock type with 10. Since the start of the current bird flu outbreak in 2022, state and federal officials have required the destruction of 16.2 million birds to contain the disease's spread. Nationally, 61.5 million birds have been destroyed, United States Department of Agriculture data shows. Additional information on HPAI can be found on the Iowa Department of Agriculture's website. The Iowa Board of Regents tells the three state universities to eliminate DEI positions not required by law. This story by Stephen Gruber-Miller. The Iowa Board of Regents is instructing the state's three public universities to eliminate all staff positions focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion that are not necessary for the school's accreditation or to comply with state or federal law. The nine-member Board of Regents voted to adopt the recommendation Thursday at its meeting in Cedar Falls. A law signed by Governor Kim Reynolds this year required the Regents to review diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at the state's public universities. Republican lawmakers who control the Iowa legislature chastised administrators for the University of Iowa, Iowa State University, and the University of Northern Iowa this spring over the total cost of their DEI programs. The legislature considered a bill earlier this year that would have required the three universities to disband their DEI programs completely and forbid state money from being spent on a DEI office or administrator. That bill did not pass, but Board of Regents President Michael Richards directed the universities in March to pause the implementation of any new DEI programs. Representative Taylor Collins, a Republican from Minneapolis who led the bill to require universities to disband their DEI programs, thanked the regents for their work on the issue in an interview with the Des Moines Register. 
The representative said, I think the recommendations are a good step forward. I appreciate the board approving them formally and look forward to seeing them being implemented over the coming months here. Representative Collins said House Republicans will have to discuss whether they want to pursue additional DEI legislation. But he said, if it takes a new law to implement the region's recommendations, I'm certainly willing to do so. Courtney Rays, executive director of the LGBTQ rights group One Iowa, condemned the Board of Regents' vote to gut inclusion efforts. In a statement, Reyes said, The Regents chose to align with an extremist group of House Republicans, showing blatant disregard for the compelling evidence from data, research, and the desires of the campus community. Eliminating these crucial diversity, equity, and inclusion programs will devastate our university's capacity to attract, retain, and prepare students for their future careers." The recommendations adopted by the Board of Regents instruct the U of I, Iowa State, and UNI to restructure their university-wide DEI offices to eliminate any DEI functions that are not required for accreditation or to comply with the law. Any other DEI-focused positions not necessary for those reasons should also be eliminated, according to the Board of Regents. Regent Nancy Dunkel, who voted against the recommendation, said the board should do more to support students. Dunkel said, if a student came to school and did just what was necessary, where would they go? So we can do better than that, and we should. And by us pairing it back to just what is absolutely necessary is not good enough, in my opinion. The state's public universities are required to comply with state and federal civil rights laws that prohibit discrimination in hiring or other programs based on race, sex, age, disability, or other protected classes. Other DEI programs may be necessary to comply with NCAA rules, accreditation, and to receive federal and state grants or financial aid. The Regents also committed to adopt a policy consistent with the law, quote, prohibiting the consideration of race and other protected class characteristics in admissions. The U.S. Supreme Court earlier this year struck down affirmative action policies at universities, writing that universities cannot consider race in their admissions process. Iowa's public universities rely on the Regent Admission Index for applications, which does not consider race or gender. And the Regents said the three state universities should take reasonable steps to assure that no student, employee, visitor, or applicant is required to disclose their pronouns or to submit a DEI statement or participate in DEI initiatives. The Regents also instructed universities to standardize annual employee guidance for separating personal political advocacy from university business. A draft recommendation would have required the universities to develop a proposal, quote, to establish a widespread initiative that includes opportunities for education and research on free speech and civic education. But Regent Jim Lindenmeyer said of that original language, it sounds like in retrospect we're predetermining that this is a need on our campus and that we can afford to do it. The board amended that recommendation to instruct the universities to explore a free speech proposal rather than develop one. Several speakers weighed in on the DEI proposal during the public comment portion of the Regents' meeting on Wednesday. 
Nicole Tripp, a senior at the University of Northern Iowa majoring in social work, said defunding Iowa's diversity, equity, and inclusion services will worsen the state's brain drain. Tripp said, most students I know came to the university because they knew there were systems in place that would provide community and support during their time on campus. There is not one student on campus who has not in some way been positively affected by a DEI service. Tripp said her social work education was elevated by the university's DEI services. She said, I was given specific training on campus regarding minority and marginalized identities that now give me a competitive edge to get hired. I worry for the future students who may not have had that leg up. Keenan Crow, Director of Policy and Advocacy for One Iowa, spoke during the public comment period to say the report's recommendations ignored the input given by students, faculty, and staff that overwhelmingly described the university's DEI services positively. Crow said, the authors have submitted a report that is entirely political theater, and they expect me and the campus community to take it seriously. While the universities will be required to cut any DEI programs not necessary to comply with the law or accreditation standards, one of the board's recommendations is for the schools to explore recruitment strategies to increase diversity of intellectual and philosophical perspective in faculty and staff applicant pools. Regent Abby Crow said, it seems contradictory to tell the universities to cut diversity, equity, and inclusion programming while also telling the institutions to seek greater diversity of intellectual and philosophical perspectives in hiring. Keenan Crow said, I don't think we can pick and choose which aspects of diversity that we want to encourage more at the universities. I think that if we want these programs or hiring practices to be broadly universal, equal, I don't understand how uplifting one and reducing others is fair. Regent David Barker said he believes diversity of philosophical and political perspectives at the universities has been neglected, while other types of diversity have been promoted. Barker said, I think the universities have done an excellent job of promoting many kinds of diversity at the university, and we have a lot of diversity. I think, though, we may have fallen short on diversity of ideological and political perspective. And from uh, a brief uh, from uh, Nation World Extra, Governor says L.A. Freeway closed after fire will reopen by Tuesday. This story from Los Angeles. Repairs to an elevated Los Angeles freeway closed because of an arson fire are moving faster than expected, and lanes are scheduled to reopen by next Tuesday, California Governor Gavin Newsom said Thursday. Earlier this week, officials said it could take crews between three and five weeks to shore up the mile-long stretch of Interstate 10 near downtown after the blaze last Saturday burned about 100 support columns. Newsom said during an evening news conference, the bridge structure itself seems to be in better shape than we anticipated. Uh, one thing we can guarantee you is we will be open five lanes in both directions at the latest Tuesday of next week. More than 250 people were working around the clock to make the repairs, he said. Alabama inmate executed for killing a man in the 1993 robbery. 
An Alabama inmate convicted of killing a man during a 1993 robbery when he was a teenager was executed Thursday by lethal injection. 49-year-old Casey McWhirter was pronounced dead at 6.56 p.m. at a southwest Alabama prison. McWhirter was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death for his role in the robbery and shooting death of 34-year-old Edward Lee Williams on February 18th of 1993.